0: Well, good morning. It is good to be in the house of the Lord with you this morning, and a pleasure to bring the Word of God to you today. And before we get started, I want to reiterate something that uh, Brother Brian said earlier, and that's to point out the K-group questions. We are starting K-groups back this week, and we have questions now to ponder and consider about the, uh, the sermon today. And I would encourage you, as I preach. I know this is kind of weird to for a preacher to say, pay attention to something other than me, but pay attention to the questions and look at them and, and think about how you might answer them as you listen to God's word today. So our text for this morning is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. I had Alex read uh, back up a little bit and start in chapter 4 just to give you a little context, but I want to read again. Very briefly, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we come to you on the merit of your son, Jesus Christ. Nothing that we do or say could ever gain us entrance into your presence, Lord. And so we rest fully on Christ this morning. And we pray, God, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit in this time, that he may illuminate the words of your scripture so that we may see your beauty this morning, Lord. May we be captured by your glory as we ponder our life with you now and the life that we will have with you for eternity. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'll confess something to you this morning. For the past several weeks, as I prayed and thought about what to preach this morning, and as I ended up on 2 Corinthians chapter five, and then I prayed and studied more, I quickly became daunted by the subject matter. Despite my cheeky little title for this sermon, the topic of heaven and what it's like, what it means to leave the earthly life and to be at home with the Lord, is a weighty subject. It's very daunting for me this morning, and I think that it is that way for two reasons. One is that this is a very emotional subject. It's an emotionally charged topic. For some, the mystery of passing from this life to the next fills them with fear and dread. And for others who may have lost loved ones, the desire to know that they are safe and at peace elicits strong emotions. And what underlies this, I think, is, is a fear or anxiety of the unknown. Heaven, being away from the body and present with the Lord, is by very definition outside of our experience. We know nothing of it now experientially. And so it is natural to fear what we can't know. And the second reason I think that this subject is daunting is that there is a temptation to explain everything, to try to give a full picture of the subject. And Scripture gives us all we need for life and godliness, but it doesn't answer every question we can ask of it. And that includes on the subject of heaven. To quote uh, Professor Ben Dunson, he says, Heaven, like God Himself, is a world we understand truly and yet fall short of understanding fully. I'll say it again Heaven, like God Himself, is a world we understand truly. Everything that Scripture teaches us about heaven is true and good. And yet, we fall short of understanding it fully. We can't get a full picture. And that's not always a bad thing. 1 Corinthians 2 9 says, What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. And how beautiful is it that there is something waiting for us that we could not even imagine. And so I don't want to explain everything. I don't want to fall into, the, into that temptation. So my goal this morning is to help us not understand everything, but rest and trust in God for the care of our souls and the souls of our loved ones. And I want to do that by walking through 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1-19. through Uh, But before I get to that, I I do feel the need to address some conceptions and misconceptions that we might have about heaven. So if I say the word heaven, what comes to your mind? What words pop into your mind? What pictures, mental pictures might you have? What emotional reactions creep up in your heart when I say heaven? Heaven. Because all of us have a conception of what heaven is like. All of us have thoughts and ideas about it. And if we're not careful to allow Scripture to shape those conceptions, those conceptions can turn into misconceptions. And sometimes they're benign. They're inconsequential thoughts. I think of a story that my... My mother tells of when I was younger, maybe four or five years old. Um, I had a, a babysitter who was an African-American woman. And one day I went up to my mom and I said, um, you know, in heaven, do we get to choose the color of our skin? And she just kind of was looking at me weird, like, why would you ask a question like that? Maybe it has to do with your babysitter and noticing differences of skin tone. And so she took the opportunity to explain how we're all made in God's image, that we're all beautiful in the sight of God, no matter what our skin color looks like. But then she asked me, well, why, you know, why do you ask that question? What color skin do you want in heaven? And I said, green. <laughs> she said, what? Why do you want green skin when you go to heaven? And I said, because I want to be a ninja turtle. <laughs> So it had nothing to do with my babysitter, but I wanted to be a Ninja Turtle when I got to heaven. And so that's a pretty silly, inconsequential thought about, you know, choosing the color of our skin in heaven. But some misconceptions can be a little bit more malignant than that, right? My goal is not to address all the ways that we can get heaven wrong. In fact, that would be impossible, but I do want to explore a few common ones. The first being that the word heaven in scripture always means the same thing. That's not quite true. I've uh, noticed four kind of distinct ways that heaven is used in, in scripture. One being that heaven sometimes refers to actual physical realities, like the sky or space, or maybe more generally the area above the earth. So in Matthew 5, 26, Jesus tells his disciples, look to the birds of the air. And that word air there is Greek, uranos, or the word for heaven. Here, as in a few other places, it's referring to the earth's atmosphere. It's a physical place, a part of the natural world. In Psalm 19, verses one through six, David's Psalm begins by expressing the glory of God revealed in the heavens which is the Hebrew word, sameyim. And this passage is referring to the celestial bodies, space, especially the sun. And these heavens were visible to humans, but beyond the reach of the birds that flew through the sky. And so sometimes heaven or heavens really, they're the same word, especially in Hebrew. The, wor- the, the word for heaven in Hebrew is plural, no matter if we see it singular or plural in our English translation, it's a plural word. So heaven or heavens can sometimes refer to physical realities, sky and space, but oftentimes it refers to immaterial realities. So for example, Genesis 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and distinguishing the physical realities with the spiritual ones, or Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The immaterial world, the the things that we can't see, the reality that is beyond what we can see and touch, that is sometimes referred to as heaven or the heavens. And then very similarly to that, but slightly different, is the spiritual realm or the dwelling place of God. So 1 Kings chapter 8, which Brian read for us earlier, Solomon declares that heaven is the dwelling place of God. But we need to be careful because he also says heaven can't even contain you, God. So God is not contained to a place, even a spiritual place. He is all and in all but heaven is often described as the dwelling place of God, the realm where our spirit or soul goes when we pass from this life to the next. And uh, sometimes the uh, theologians will refer to that, that state when we leave the body and, be, and, and go home to the Lord, go to heaven with God to dwell with him there in the spiritual realm as the intermediate state, and that feels a little sterile to me, and so I like Randy Alcorn's uh, description, the present heaven. When we die and go to the Lord, we are with him in heaven, but it is a present heaven. It is not the, f- the end goal. And that is our final way in which heaven is used. Heaven is sometimes describing the final state of reality after God consummates His plan of redemption. And more often we use this this um, heaven in this way colloquially. We 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 say we're going to spend eternity with heaven, but really the picture that Scripture paints is a recreated heaven and earth that are joined together, where God will dwell with His people forever and ever in glory. Revelation 21 paints that picture of our future. In that chapter, heaven and earth, the heaven and earth we inhabit now and pass away, will pass away. And in their place, a new heaven and new earth are created. And the new Jerusalem comes out, is described as coming out of heaven and descending to earth. And the throne of God will be with his people and he will dwell with them forever. And Lord willing, As we prayed for this morning, uh, my good friend and brother Zach Carter will be exploring that sense of the word heaven next week. And so those are kind of the ways that heaven is used to describe a place in Scripture. And, and we don't even have time to mention the kingdom of heaven and how that plays into all of this as well. But that's kind of the first misconception about heaven is that it always, talks, always means one thing. Uh, there's a kind of a, a variety of connotations that heaven can have in Scripture. So just be aware of that. The second misconception is that heaven is an eternity of floating in clouds. And if you're lucky, you might get a harp and be able to sing some songs for all eternity. And it's really no surprise where that misconception comes from. Uh, Sky, we've already talked about this, but sky and cloud imagery is closely related and associated with heaven in Scripture. And we really, in order to see how this misconception is... uh, Is carried out, is is continued, we just look at the majority of pop culture depictions of heaven. And we can, you know, little newspaper comics pop up about heaven and it's always clouds with the pearly gates sticking up out of the clouds and you might have some angels floating in the background. But that's really contortion of the totality of what heaven is. And thinking about heaven as just simply floating in the clouds, playing a harp, and singing songs is, in the best case, just boring. I mean, if we're honest with ourselves, do we really want to spend eternity floating on clouds, playing an instrument, and singing? And if you ask non-believers what their conception of heaven is, or if they don't believe in heaven, what they think other people believe about heaven you probably get something like that. And they're not gonna be very excited about it, to be honest. And that's the best case scenario. The worst case is that we have fallen into a form of Gnosticism. or, Or a way to think about it is the idea that physical things are bad and spiritual things are good. So our goal should be to get out of these bodies, to leave the shell of our bodies and go be spirits forever. And that is not the picture that Scripture paints at all. It is not biblical and, in fact, demeans the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that is the second misconception about heaven. And third and final one I want to point out is you'll have to bear with me here. Don't, I don't want to lose you here. Third misconception is heaven is a better place. And then I really phrase it that way as kind of a shock factor. Um, my son likes to, when we sit down to eat dinner, sometimes say, I don't like this meal. I love it. And so he tricks us into, into thinking that we're going one way, he's going one way, but he, but he says another thing. And so when I say heaven is not a better place, I mean, it is the best place. How many times do we hear attempts to console the grieving with, oh, he or she is in a better place? At best, this is a mediocre attempt to console people with half-truths. But I fear that for most people, when they say that, they have missed the point of heaven completely. Pastor John Piper gives this warning. He says, why do we want eternal life? Why do we want heaven? One might say, because hell is the alternative and that's painful. Another might say, because there will be no sadness there. Another might say, my loved ones have gone there and I want to be with them. And others might dream of endless bodily pleasures or maybe some more noble fortunes. In all these things, one thing is missing, God. Because when I fear when we say heaven is a better place, we lead people to think about all the things that God gives to us, that God removes from us as we uh, move from this life into the next. It is good that we no longer have the weight of sin, that there is no more crying, nor shame, or pain, or suffering anymore. But if we stop there, we're missing it completely. Because the true point of eternal life is that we have God. God is eternal life, or more accurately, John, what Jesus says in John 17, verse 3, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's what eternal life is, is knowing God and being with God. First Thessalonians four seventeen, and after that we are we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Knowing God and being with God is the point of heaven. First John three two says, "Beloved, we are God's children now." And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We will know God, we will be with him, and we will be like him. And to top it all off, Psalm 16, verse 11, "'You make known to me the path of life. "'In your presence there is fullness of joy, At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The reason why in heaven we will have a fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore is because we will be at the right hand of God. We will be with him and we will be like him and we will know him. Heaven is not just a better place. It is the best place that currently exists because we will be with God. That's why I loved singing that hymn, I'd Rather Have Jesus. Because if heaven is all the good things that we can think of, but Jesus is not there, then it's not heaven at all. I'll read a quote from Jonathan Edwards and I want you to pay attention. This is a sermon that he gave to his people. In it he says, the redeemed have all their objective good in God. God Himself is the great good which they are bought, brought to the possession and enjoyment of by redemption. He is the highest good and the sum of all the good which Christ purchased. God is the inheritance of the saints. He is the portion of their souls. He, God is the, their wealth and treasure, their food, their life, their dwelling place, their ornament and diadem, and their everlasting and honor and glory. They have none in heaven but God. He is the great good which the redeemed are received to at death and which they are to rise to at the end of the world." The Lord God, he is the light of the heavenly Jerusalem. He is the river of the water of life that runs and the tree of life that grows in the midst of the paradise of God. The glorious excellencies and beauty of God will be what will forever entertain the minds of the saints and the love of God will be their everlasting feast. So... That is a few misconceptions about heaven and how we might be able to avoid them. So moving on to our text for this morning, Second Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. We see, pick up in verse 1, Paul says, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So I think it's interesting that Paul uses the imagery of tents because that goes all the way back through the Old Testament to Exodus chapter 26 when God gives the instruction to build the tabernacle, a tent, a temporary dwelling. So I think Paul uses that imagery, tent versus building, to point out the fact that this life, this earthly life that we have now is temporary. Tents are temporary. Buildings are permanent. Even Acts chapter 18, verse three, describes Paul as a tent maker and likely he made tents for tourists that would come into the region of Corinth to uh, participate or view the Isthmian games, which are essentially like an Olympic type event back in first century um, Greece. So, this idea of tents is all throughout Scripture as being temporary dwellings. And he describes our earthly life as a tent. What we, what we ex- live and experience now is but temporary. We are waiting and anticipating a permanent home with God, a home not made with hands, that He's eternal, that is permanent. John 14. Verse two, Jesus says, "In my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I would have not told you that I go to prepare a place for you." Now I don't know if we'll literally be living in rooms or mansions, as some translations uh, put there. But what is clear is that Jesus is assuring his followers that anyone and everyone who comes to him by faith will be welcome into the family of God. There is room for you. You will be at home with him if you have faith in Christ. And even that imagery portrays the the many rooms in the house of God, portrays, uh, picks up on the first century uh, cultural um, practice of uh, a family adding on to their homes, when a child was old enough to get married, the son would marry, and then his family would add an addition onto his family's home, and they would live together. So what, God, what Jesus is saying is that there is room for you in the family of God. You will be with me forever, permanently, eternally. So when we leave the temporary dwelling of the earthly body, we will have an eternal home with Christ. So then we move on to verses 2 through 4. And we see there a longing, an anticipation, a groaning for what is to come. It says, for in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life." So Paul moves from establishing the tent building metaphor and he moves into our experience of what what that's like. When we live in this tent now, we know, we feel it in our lives that this is not what we were made for. We groan in anticipation, longing for something else. This is picked up also in, in Romans chapter eight, Verses 22 and 23, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the firstfruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So that is the human experience as we live in the earthly tent we realize that there's something more that we are waiting for. We groan as we anticipate our future with God. And then a couple times in this, these verses, Paul mentions um, nakedness or being unclothed. And he says, he, he connects the, the burden that we feel and, and the idea of being clothed by something further. And it's an interesting dynamic because in almost every other instance in scripture where burdens or being burdened is talked about, it's the idea of a weight on us that needs to be lifted, that we need to be freed from some sort of weight bearing down on us. But that's not quite the case here because the relief from the burden, as Paul describes it, comes from adding something further He says, the goal is not to be unclothed, but to be further clothed, right? And Jesus picks up on this a little bit in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, that burden there, right, on our shoulders, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So Jesus is saying there the goal is not to just get rid of the burden but there's something else that we need to be that needs to be put on. We need to be further clothed. And interestingly enough, we see something similar also in Revelation chapter 6 verses 9 through 11. This is the vision that John has of heaven. He see, he's in the throne room of God, seeing all these different things take place. And he, he, in chapter 6, he gives a, a short snippet of what the, some saints, in particular the martyrs, those who have died for the faith, experience in the throne of God, at the right hand of God. He says, when, I, "'When he opened the fifth seal, "'I saw under the altar the souls of those "'who had been slain for the word of God "'and for the witness they had borne. "'They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So even in the present heaven, where the souls of the saints are awaiting the final heaven, the consummation of the redemption of the world, there's still an anticipation there. There's still a need to be further clothed, and that is the promise that God gives us, that we would be clothed with the righteousness of Christ, with what is mortal will be swallowed up by life. The idea here is that the burden of this life and, and to some extent, to some degree, the, the life in the present heaven is one of lack. That's the burden, is, is, is a burden of lack. We are not yet what we will be. Yes, we are justified and saved from the penalty of sin. And the saints who live at the right hand of God now in the present heaven are freed from the power of sin But the world is not yet as it should be. There's still more to come. And especially we here now, we have not been fully saved from the power of sin. We still experience the effects of the curse in our bodies, in our thoughts, in our relationships, in our culture, in our society, in the world at large. I mean, look out the door. Sin is there. Creation groans. And Paul seems to say that that is because we are still missing something. We're not supposed to... The goal isn't to get rid of the body, to be out and free, to be unclothed or naked. What we need is what is mortal to be swallowed up or covered by life. Paul says it another way in 1 Corinthians 15... Of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So God relieves us of the burden of this life by clothing us further in the power and the glory bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that brings us to verse 5. He who has prepared for us this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. It is God who does the work to make all of this possible. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God. God did the work. He saved us when we could not save ourselves He justified us and brought us into right relationship with him so that the robe of Christ's righteousness could be placed on our shoulders. He did the work, and then he sent the Spirit as the proof or the guarantee or the down payment that all of it is true. We see this... Idea of, of the Spirit being a guarantee or a down payment all through the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 22, and he who has also put his seal on us and given us his Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. In Ephesians 1, verse 13 and 14, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your sal- salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The Spirit is a down payment given to us as proof that what God promised us is our future grace coming, our inheritance is sure and certain. The heavenly dwelling prepared and kept for us by Christ is guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. He is the down payment. In our human interactions, a down payment shows the recipient that you will make good on the rest of the transaction at a later date, either all at once or slowly over time. So how much more certain, then, can we be with God's down payment? God who can never lie and whose purposes never fail. His guarantee, it is so certain that it is as if we already possess it. That's why Paul can say in Ephesians 1, 3, that he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, today, you and I have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places because we have been sealed and guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. So how should we react to this? And that's the topic of verses 6 through 9. So we are always of good courage We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. Twice in these verses, Paul says that we are of good courage. And this phrase and the imperative form or the command form, be strong and courageous, uh, is all over Scripture. We see a great example of it in Deuteronomy 31.6. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. So the reason that Paul says we can be of good courage and that Scripture com- can command us to be courageous is because God is with us always, and he will work for you for your good. Courage is not the opposite of fear, not the absence of fear. It is the ability to do what needs to be done despite fear because of what God has done for you already. So, Paul also describes that as we are at home in the body, we walk by faith. And we know from Hebrews chapter 11 that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That is our present experience. We who live in the earthly tent, when we live in the body, we walk by faith. And, and faith as described by the Bible is not a wishful thinking kind of faith. It's an assurance of things hoped for a conviction of things not seen. So we're hoping, we're not seeing yet, but we're sure, we're convicted. That's how we live now, but it will not always be that way. And for some, those who have died in the Lord, they who are away from the body and are at home with the Lord walk by sight. They see God for who he is. They see him truly and fully, 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve says, For we now see, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. The veil will be lifted. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So those who are away from the body and at home with the Lord, they see God fully and truly in his unmitigated glory and splendor. Moses couldn't even see the full glory of God. He had to be shielded and hid in a cleft of rock because the glory of God would be too powerful for him. But when we're away from the body, we see that glory in all its fullness. And that is a good thing. And that's why Paul can say we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Philippians 1, 21 through 23 says something similar. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. It is better for those who are away from the body and are at home with the Lord because they see God fully and truly. So then lastly, verse nine, no matter where we find us, whether we're still here home in the body or we are at home with the Lord, Paul says we aim to please God. So in your the front of your study guide, there's a quote from Charles Spurgeon. He says, I am a pilgrim in this world, but at home in my God. In the earth I wander, but in God I dwell in a quiet habitation. That's the picture that scripture points for us as we live here on this earth, that we are sojourners or pilgrims. So how can we be a good sojourner now? One, we we be of good courage, knowing that our heavenly home is secure. We walk by faith, knowing that one day we will walk by sight. And we aim to please God, knowing that he has prepared for us things that we could not begin to imagine. And so that leads me to our final points of application. How can we take comfort in this? And how can we comfort others as they maybe experience Grief and lament over losing those they love. First point of application is to groan in this earthly tent. It's right and good. Know that this is not your home. But groan with courage, faithfulness, and obedience. We're not to be complainers and stick there forever. But we groan in our earthly tent, knowing and anticipating something further, All the while being courageous, being faithful, and being obedient to the Word of God. Because this light momentary affliction is just preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Second point of application is really simple, but it can be difficult to do sometimes. Be careful not to long for a heaven that is devoid of Christ. Be careful not to long for a heaven that is devoid of Christ. When you think about your future, the inheritance that you will possess in the future, when you think of heaven in the next life, do you anticipate it? Do you long for it? Do you yearn for that because you will be with Christ or because of all these other things that you might get. Just be careful, brothers and sisters, not to long for a heaven that is devoid of Christ. He is the fullest and highest good. Long for him and help others to long and yearn for Christ. And final point of application for those of us who have lost dear brothers and sisters in Christ, Grieve and lament your loss. It is good and right to process those emotions. Be honest with God through all of it. But in the midst of that grief and that lament, spend time to meditate on the fact that those who have died in Christ are with him now. They are home. They are at rest and peace. They are more at rest and peace than us. They are freed from sin and beholding with unveiled faces the glory of Christ. They know him fully and are like him, lacking only the resurrection of their bodies in the new heaven and the new earth. And Lord willing, we will learn about that next week. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we pray that if we have had any wrong thought about life with you for eternity, that it would fall through the cracks. That we would be so filled with the truth and majesty of your word that we would yearn for you most of all. Help us, God, go forward in this place, longing and anticipating the day when we get to be with you as we groan In our earthly tents, help us to long for the day when we are with you fully and finally. God, we thank you for this word this morning. We thank you for sealing and guaranteeing that future with the Spirit. May he fill us this day and every day forward to behold the glory of Christ from one degree to another and become more and more like him until we are finally and fully consummated in glory. We thank you again for this in Jesus' name. Amen.